wants you to be well-fed and cared for tonight, and tonight will be no exception to his rule. Uh, our guest speaker is somebody who is a member of this fellowship, longtime member. In fact, many years ago was uh, the youth pastor here and later became the director of Lifeline Missions. You know where I'm going with this. Anyway, so God called him out to more wide open and greater pastures, and now he serves as executive director of 1615, traveling around the world and spreading the gospel and uh, sharing about God's love for the nations. So would you please welcome our dear friend and brother, Matthew Ellison. Hi. Well, Pete called me on Monday. I was in Atlanta, and he asked me if I teach tonight. And I told him I'd be honored, and so I had meetings all day Monday and Tuesday in Atlanta, And I spent today sitting at God's feet, meditating on his words so that I could be prepared to bring the sauce tonight. That's what a friend of mine in Philadelphia says when you're going to teach. He says, bring the sauce. (laughs) As I was studying, it occurred to me that elements of what I'm going to share, I may have shared in this pulpit before. But then I remembered the words of C.H. Spurgeon. He was asked once, if he ever taught the same message twice. And he said, do you think I'd throw away the axe after I cut down the tree? So whether this is fresh and new or something you've already heard, I hope the Lord ministers to your heart tonight. And with that, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we come before you tonight in the name of Jesus. We are humbled that you would allow us into your presence. We thank you for mercy. We thank you that because of the cross and the penalty that was paid on our behalf, that you are able to withhold from us the judgment that we all deserve. And we thank you that because of Jesus' righteous life, that you're able to bestow upon us the goodness that he alone did deserve. And being here tonight is part of that. You daily load our arms with benefits, and we thank you for the gift of gathering together tonight in your name to celebrate you, to study your word. Lord, as your word is poured out, we pray that you would show us wondrous things, namely yourself. We want to see you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I travel around the country, the question is often posed among mission and church leaders, why after 2,000 years of church history is the Great Commission yet unfulfilled? When limitless spiritual resources have been given to us in Christ, when seemingly boundless physical resources have been given to us, when one considers that the Great Commission was the clear marching order of Jesus Christ to the church, why do so many nations still wait to hear about Jesus Christ? That's a good question. 
There is even a missions book out today entitled, Why the World Still Waits. And it is one man's attempt to answer that question. People's answers to why the world still waits vary widely. Many will say it's because of a lack of partnership. The church can't get it together. It's too divided. And we know that a house divided cannot stand. So they say it's because of a lack of partnership. Others claim that it's because there is an inequitable distribution of Christian resources. They claim that those who have the resources spend the resources on themselves and don't share it with those who have so very little. Some say it's a methodology problem. They say we need new methods to be effective. Others cite that the church is just too selfish. They say she is too preoccupied with herself. Just last year, I spoke at a national missions conference where one of the keynote speakers said with great force that it's all about resources. He said that if American Christians would just share a bit of their overabundance with churches in developing nations, then the task would be finished. The problem with all of these answers is that they're not answers. They're symptoms. They are merely symptoms of why the world still waits. They are indications of a much deeper issue. Ultimately, I believe that the reason the world still waits is not a pragmatic reason. It is not a funding or resource issue. It's not even a lack of partnership, and that's a big part of what I do. I help churches develop partnerships with organizations and other churches to reach nations. But I would tell you that that is not even the root of the problem. Could it be that the nations are still waiting to hear about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Because those who name Him as Lord are not convinced that he's all that great. Perhaps those who've taken on the moniker Christian don't have an all-consuming passion to know Jesus Christ in the fullness of his perfections and to enjoy him more than we enjoy anyone, anything, or any accomplishment. Could it be that the world still waits because we don't know Jesus as the supreme treasure of our soul? Of course, we treasure our salvation, don't we? We certainly treasure not going to hell, but do we treasure the one who purchased our salvation? One wise pastor puts it this way, We do not commend what we do not cherish. We do not commend what we do not cherish. I'm a pretty simple guy, so that makes sense. If we are not ravished by all that God is for us in His Son, if we are not stunned by His glory, If we are not in awe of his majesty, folks, we are going to find it very difficult to rouse the kind of desire necessary to preach the gospel among all nations. 
Because the nations that need it the most are the places that are hardest to get into. Before we would become effective emissaries of God, we must discover that Jesus Christ is worth declaring. He is worth proclaiming and he is worthy to be obeyed. If Calvary of Albuquerque would be a church that reaches the world for Christ, then first, Calvary Albuquerque must become a church that relishes Christ. I've entitled this message before. It's a small word, but here's the idea. Before we talk about the Great Commission, we have to talk about something else. What we're going to do tonight is take a look at what happened in Isaiah, in him, I stress that, before he was launched into ministry. And as we do, I think we can gain some insights on what needs to happen in us if we are truly going to be effective in reaching this world for our Savior. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. And the first thing we see in chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4 is what I've called the crisis of encounter. This is the first thing that happened to him prior to his launch. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah's commission into ministry began with a lofty vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. He had what A.W. Tozer called a crisis of encounter. Let me define the word crisis for you. Crisis is a decisive point or situation. This was Isaiah's definitive life experience. Everything is changing for the prophet. From this moment on, he will never be the same because he saw Jesus. The word he uses for Lord here is emphatic. It's the Hebrew word Adonai. And it means the supreme Lord of all who is over all. In other words, this is the one who is above all else. He is over all else. When he says Adonai, what he's saying is this is the overwhelming one, the sovereign one. Now, I said this was a vision of Jesus. This is what theologians call a Christophany. 
And that's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Well, how do I know this is a Christophany? Well, we're not going to go there tonight, but if you want to, write it down on your notes or in the margin of your Bible. John 12, 39 through 41. And if you look at that passage, it becomes clear that here in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is beholding the only begotten Son of God. Though he was not incarnate yet, This is Jesus, the uncreated one. I want you to notice something there in verse 1. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Why didn't Isaiah see Jesus until Uzziah died? I'm not sure. A lot of commentators conjecture on this. But I think it stands to reason that he didn't see Jesus until Uzziah died because his eyes were on Uzziah instead of being on King Jesus. Because if you look at the reign of Uzziah, he was a pretty decent king up until the end of his life. Under his leadership, the borders were expansive. It was a time of national prosperity. So it's very possible that even this religious, upright man, Isaiah, had his focus off. Maybe they were on the king instead of being on the king of kings. Chuck Swindoll said, God reserves the discovery of the depth of himself to those whose hearts are completely his. He reserves his deepest secrets, his deepest revelations to those who have hearts united in fear of him. I think that up to this point in Isaiah's life, his heart was fragmented. It was broken into segments and maybe certain parts of his heart belonged to God, but his heart wasn't solely the Lord's. He was perhaps familiar with the good things of God, the good things that God had created. But I think before this, he had never been introduced to the presence of the uncreated. He enjoyed the good things of God. He even talked about God. But this uncreated presence of Jesus, he had never known. Matthew 5, 8. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. The writer of Hebrews says something very similar in Hebrews twelve fourteen. He says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If we want to make our lives and our families and our church count for the sake of eternity, then we must have a sharp and stunning encounter with Jesus. We must see the Lord. But we'll never see Him as He really is until our hearts are His alone. We'll never see Him clearly until He is enthroned within us. And this brings up a very important question for all of us. Do we have any Uzziahs in our lives that need to be dethroned? 
Are there any Uzziahs in our lives that need to be deposed of? A Uzziah might be a person. Could be a thing. A relationship. A possession. A habit. I've discovered that ministry can even be a Uzziah. Maybe you are your Uzziah. Whatever it is in our lives that competes for God's attention and affection, it will never satisfy. And ultimately, if it promises to, it's lying to us. By the grace of God, we need to remove the Uzziahs and let Jesus Christ take his place on the throne of our hearts. Let me tell you a little bit about Uzziahs. Have you ever noticed that Uzziahs, those things that compete for God's love, you can call them temptations if you want to, they gain power over us by convincing us they can make us happier than God can? You ever thought about temptation in that way? The way that it draws you away is by tricking you into believing that it can make you happier than God. We don't enthrone Uzziahs in our lives because we have to or because we're obligated to. We do so because we believe that Uzziah will make us happy. That Uzziah will satisfy us. C.S. Lewis said our problem is not that we want pleasure, but that we are far too easily pleased. I want you to grasp what's going on here. Jesus Christ is seeking lordship in the heart of the prophet. He's wrecking him. You'll see that in a minute. And he is saying, whatever is on your heart, get it off. Move it away. Because I'm going to take over. He was seeking preeminence in the prophet. But simultaneously, and this is very important, you must know that Jesus Christ was seeking Isaiah's best. God's glory and Isaiah's joy were not at odds. They are exactly the same thing. I know this because we learn from Psalm 1611 and many other places in Scripture say something similar. This is what it says in Psalm 1611. In God's presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures evermore. God is violently opposed to sin. And when he comes in and takes over, he removes the competition. He demands to be enthroned. But when he takes over, he satisfies. He fills and he gives joy. Again, in his presence is fullness of joy. Understand, God wants to be the blazing sun that is at the center of your spiritual solar system. He wants to be the center. And when he's in the center, all the planets of your life will be held in proper orbit. And know this, as he seeks that central blazing place, he's seeking what's best for you. He's trying to exalt and expand your joy. Here's the application. 
rebel against Uzziah's coup. Don't be bullied around anymore by some two-bit monarch who only gives you second-rate pleasures. Don't settle for the fruitless joys of a counterfeit king. Jesus, the king of kings, is sweeter than all pleasure. So, Isaiah had to gaze upon the glory of God before he could go for God in mission or before he could engage in ministry. The same is true with us. Our involvement in ministry begins with the gaze of the soul, with the lofty vision of the preciousness of Jesus Christ. It begins by giving him preeminence in our lives. He must be supreme in ministry. His glory must be ordered above man's good. If not, your ministry will have absolutely no power. This is precisely why I believe Isaiah had to gaze upon God before he could go for God. I want you to notice some unusual creatures that attend this encounter. They're called seraphim. Verse 2, it says, Above his throne stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These unusual creatures appear only here in Scripture. At least that's what I discovered in my study. If you find them somewhere else, please let me know. We don't know a lot about them, but we do know that seraphim translated means holy burners. What a beautiful picture. They're burning in worship. I don't want you to think these are cute, chubby little cherubs who shoot bows and arrows of love, and when they hit you, it makes you love Jesus. That's not what these guys are. These are amazing celestial beings. They're scary. They circle God in grand array. They celebrate the holiness of Jesus, and they require that his servants are cleansed before they are commissioned. Look at their unusual anatomy. They have six wings. Four of those wings are for reverence and worship. With two of the four designed for worship, they cover their face. The idea is God is so awesome and so beautiful that we have to cover our face in His presence. And then with two, they cover their feet. Perhaps their feet are symbolic of our attachment to earth, our attachment to soil, to the ground. Their encounter here reminds me of Moses' encounter in which he could not look upon the glory of God at the burning bush, you remember? And he had to remove what? His sandals. It's interesting, look at Moses' launch into ministry, exactly the same, it's a crisis of encounter. 
And then notice they have two more wings with which they fly around and do the Lord's will. Wings devoted to service. I'd read this passage many times and overlooked it, but I think it's pretty significant that there's a two-thirds emphasis on worship and a one-third emphasis on service. Service is an essential outgrowth of worship. In fact, when service is done properly, it is worship. But I believe that nothing can take the place of pure, undefiled, unspoiled adoration. It's why we were made to enjoy Him, to worship Him. Pastor John Piper's got a great quote. It's going around in the missions world in a very significant way today. It says this, Worship is the fuel of missions. Missions begins and ends in worship. Where zeal for worship is weak, zeal for missions will also be weak. Does that make sense? If you're not madly in love with Jesus, how on earth are you going to go into the hardest places in the world and declare His greatness? How is a church that's not desperate for God actually going to make a dent in reaching the unreached people groups? What's happening here in this passage is Isaiah is getting stirred up to make much of Jesus Christ by seeing much of Jesus Christ. The seraphim have an anthem. I already read it. I'll read it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's an ecstatic ascription. It's almost as if they're stuttering. These angels. One holy is not enough. Two holies is not enough. Three holies is not enough, but it's repeated for the sake of emphasis. Now, there are some theologians who say that the reason there's three holies is one is for the Father, one is for the Son, and one is for the Spirit. And that may be true, I'm not sure. But I have a hunch that it's something different. I think this is the Hebrew literary device known as the trisagion. And it's the ancient equivalent of boldface type. The idea is, this is a holy God. How does one define holy? Let's try. You want to try with me tonight? Pure. Otherworldly. Without blemish. Altogether different. The best I've heard? Absolute, unique, and uncreated moral perfection. But folks, all of those attempts are dingy gray at best. They all fall short of describing the holiness of God. Why? Because He is incomparable. And what are definitions anyway? They're comparisons. You want to define something, you find something similar, right? 
Any school teachers out there? Definitions are based on comparisons, but we've got a problem. He's uncreated, he's infinite, and he's absolutely unique. He's one of a kind. Who or what do you compare Jesus to? How do you describe his holiness? In Isaiah 40, verse 25 and 26, Jesus says, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Lift your eyes. Look to the heavens. Who created all these? Speaking of the stars. He who calls out the starry host one by one created them. He knows every one of them by name. And because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. He says, if you want to try and compare me, let me just give you a little bit. Let me give you a whisper of my greatness. Go outside and look at the stars. There's billions of them. Our galaxy is millions of light years in size. It takes millions of light years to cross our galaxy. And it is but one of billions. And your maker created every one of those stars. And he knows every one of them by name. It's tough to describe the holiness of God. Leonardo da Vinci, when he was painting the Last Supper, he painted all the scenery and then he painted in the disciples and he waited to paint the face of Jesus. And he waited. And he waited. And finally, in desperation, he flung up his hands and he said, It's no use. I can't paint him. And he did his best. Perhaps that's what it's like trying to describe the holiness of God. God's holiness is his only attribute that is raised to the third power in Scripture. Don't just let that go in one ear and out the other. Folks, God does nothing willy-nilly. He must be telling us something fantastically important about his holiness to raise it alone of all of his attributes to the third power. That's something worth meditating on. God, what are you trying to say about your holy character? Notice the focus of these seraphim. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. The glory of God is the radiance of his holiness. It's the effulgence, it's the overflow. His glory is His holiness emanating from His being. And we know that one day that glory will fill the earth the way the waters cover the sea. That's what the prophet Habakkuk says. And that's what the Great Commission is all about, isn't it? Spreading the glory of God in all the earth among all peoples. This is definitely a great commission passage. 
These seraphims see what will happen one day. The earth full of God's glory in a remarkable way. The Hebrew word for glory that's used here is the Hebrew word kabod. And it means to make weighty or heavy. So think about this. The weight of God is closing in on the prophet. And he feels it. There's a heaviness that descends upon him. And he senses it. He feels it. And this weight reduces him to his proper size. We'll see that in a moment. I'm sure that one of our biggest problems... One of my biggest problems is that sometimes my God is too small. I don't see him as weighty and heavy. For many of us, God is just a scrawny featherweight. But if we would see God bigger, if we would see him as he really is, the super heavyweight champion of the universe, then the problems and difficulties in our lives would become relatively small. The psalmist tells us to magnify the Lord. He doesn't mean that we're to make God big. He means that we're to see God big, to see Him as He really is. I have a telescope that my wife bought me several years ago for Christmas, and when my son was about three or four, we tried to gaze at the moon. The problem was my son at that time couldn't focus one eye. You know, that's something you have to learn through muscle control. And so he's looking into the telescope thing, and he's like, what? I don't see anything. But just last year, I brought it out, and he had the muscle control to squint one eye and to focus. And he put his eye in there, and he looked at the moon, and he put his head back. And his eyes were big. And he did it again, and he pulled back. And he said, Dad, the moon is big. When you look through a telescope at the moon, you see it as it really is. That magnifying telescope does not increase its size. It just enables you to see it as it really is. When we magnify God, we feel his weight and we see his worth as Isaiah did. And when that happens, we see how small we are. And folks, that's when God can use you. When you see his greatness... And your comparative smallness, watch out. Question tonight, how do you see God? This is not a trivial question. If you don't see him as he really is, if you are not in awe of his glory or astonished by his beauty, then your life will count for very little. You'll never realize your full potential in ministry or in life. I want you to consider the impact of this encounter. It's shattering. This is shock and awe. Verse 4. It says, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. When God shows up, things shake up. I don't believe it's possible, I mean this, to truly behold Jesus 
to see him and to stay the same. Something must change when you see Jesus Christ. When you intimately encounter him, he will shake up your life. There was a recent survey of ex-church members, and it revealed the main reason they stopped going to church was they found it boring. Apparently, they don't find worshiping Jesus a thrilling and moving experience. And yet, I want you to notice, here in the presence of the Almighty, these inanimate, inert objects of stone and wood had the good sense to tremble and to shake before the Lord of hosts. It's sad, but true. The reason so many people find worship boring is because God isn't there. He's not there tangibly. When sermons are seven steps to success and how we can all get along, God does not come through for who he is, and we belittle this Lord of hosts, this maker of the billions of stars. And people become cold and indifferent when the preaching is cheap and shallow. A.W. Tozer said, A true encounter with God will be permanent and life-changing. The experience may be brief, but the results will be evident in the life of the person touched as long as he or she lives. So, his launch into ministry began with a crisis of encounter. It turns to a confession of evil. It's going to move quickly from here, so stay with me. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The confession of evil is what's next. He sees Christ, and now he confesses the sin in his life, and he pronounces judgment upon himself, and he says, I'm undone. It actually means to be destroyed or made silent. It's as if he's saying, God, I'm speechless. I don't know what to say in your presence. I've never seen beauty like this before. His language suffered under the effort to try and express what his eyes were seeing. His mouth could not express what his soul was witnessing. If there ever was a together type of person, it was Isaiah ben Amos. This was the man who spoke the oracles of God. He was a righteous man. And yet, here in the presence of Jesus Christ, he is coming apart at the seams. He's experiencing personal disintegration. That hurts. He's becoming unraveled. His self-worth and self-esteem are being shattered at this point. And I don't get the idea that Isaiah is skipping around, do you? He's in pain. And he is filled with fearful trembling. We don't know all that he's thinking, but based on his choice of words, woe is me, he probably wanted the temple to cave in on him. Anything to get out from underneath this holy gaze. Woe is me is literally, I am in despair. What's going on here is the prophet is basically pronouncing judgment upon himself. It was one thing for prophets to pronounce judgment on others. That's what they did. 
a lot of the time. But for a prophet to pronounce God's judgment on himself is another thing altogether. Seeing the uncreated holiness of Jesus made him conscious of his sin in a whole new way. I want you to get something here. It was the vision of Jesus Christ and his beauty that gave him an accurate vision of himself. He realized who he truly was when he saw himself set up against Jesus. And in the end, it moved him to silence. Deeply aware of God's worth here, he confesses his worthlessness. He says, I'm a sinner. And I have unclean lips. Remember, he's the prophet. He spoke God's oracles. But he said, my lips are unclean, God. And I live among a people of unclean lips. This vision produced conviction, which led to honest, broken, and humble confession. Now, I'm really excited about this next part because it recently jumped out at me when I was reading the passage. And it was something that I had not previously seen. And I want to show it to you by asking you a question. What was it? that absolutely wounded the prophet to the core? What was it that produced such brokenness, such conviction, and such sorrow? Look at the passage with me. Do you see any threats of judgment here? Is there any mention of the terrible consequences of sin? He was, trans- he was transformed, guys, by beauty. It was the beauty of a holy God that rocked his world. Sometimes I'm sorry over my sin because I fear the consequences of disobedience. Right? That's not what is happening here. This is real repentance. This is an inner transformation. What's happening is he is seeing the holiness of God and recognizing that it it is exactly what his soul has always wanted and needed, but he didn't see it before. He's aware that he's been looking to finite things to fill something that only Jesus Christ can fill. And he sees that as a travesty. He says, how could I ever have looked at those things when God offered himself to me? That's what missing the mark is. That's what sin is. It's not trusting that God can meet the ache of your heart. It's looking to other things. Suddenly, Isaiah saw sin not only as something that damages man, but worse yet, he saw it as something that demeaned God. And it crushed him. Question. How can we be sorrowful about not having holiness if we don't treasure holiness? Can you weep and mourn and wail about not having holiness if you don't treasure it? Will you cry Will you confess not having holiness if you don't treasure it? 
I don't think he will. God leads Isaiah to repentance by putting his beauty on display. Don't you love it? Is it not his kindness that leads us to repentance? He breaks his heart by revealing his character. You know, in my own life, I have never known lasting victory over sin to come merely from a fear of sin's consequences. Put your hands up. Come on. Is that enough? Have you known lasting victory over sin just because of sin's consequences? Victory over sin comes as you realize that Jesus is better than sin. That's what Isaiah was recognizing. So he gives a 1 John 1.9 response. He confesses his sin before God. Quote here, The man who thinks he has something to offer God save his broken life is not fit for service. There are many of us who want to be mighty for God, but let me give you a warning. You first must be undone. If the story ended here, we would be in some deep eternal trouble. But not only is our God infinitely holy, he is infinitely merciful. Next thing we have is the cleansing efficacious. It's probably bad grammar, but it was a good alliteration. So it it means an effective cleansing. Verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. His sincere confession led to an immediate cleansing. And I want you to notice that God not only removed his sin, but also his guilt. If you have an NIV, I like the translation. And it's a more fitting translation of the Hebrew. It wasn't just sin that was taken away. It was guilt. Forgiveness turns his fearful trembling into joyful trembling. The reason this is important is because I believe a clean conscience is necessary for effective work in the ministry. Ministry is not penance. It is not paying God back for dying on the cross. That's religion. Ministry is the overflow of delight in Jesus. You want to be effective in winning souls, you better demonstrate in your life that you've been forgiven. And the reason you serve is because you're delighted. Not because you're trying to earn God's love. That's just religion. And so the guilt removal is very important here. Look at this instrument that's used to cleanse him. It's a hot coal. It touches his lips. A fiery coal. God often speaks of himself as fire. In Hebrews 10, he speaks of himself as a consuming fire. In Isaiah 33, 14, he asks a question. He says, who of us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Speaking of himself, some commentators Commentators have said this is hell, but it's not. He's asking, who can dwell with me? And then he answers. He says, he who walks righteously, speaks what is right, stops his ears against plots of murder, shuts his eyes from contemplating evil, rejects gain from extortion, 
This is the man who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. His bread will be supplied and his water will not fail him. We're going to camp out there for just a minute or two because it's so central to this whole teaching. He says, who can dwell with me? Who can live with fire? And then he says, a righteous man. A man who's not involved in extortion. A man who is not looking to evil to satisfy an emptiness. A man who's shutting his ears against plots of murder. But then he says, this is the man who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. This is key. His bread will be supplied and his water will not fail him. Folks, do you know why that man doesn't seek out evil with his eyes? Why he has stopped his ears? Why he does righteous works? Do you think he's doing that to gain God's favor? No. His bread has been supplied. Water will not fail him. Do you see what's happening? Who can dwell with God? One who's been satisfied with God and in God. And when you become satisfied in God and not in finite things, those things that used to draw you don't attract you anymore. This man dwells with God because God has become his satisfaction and he is weaned off of the world and the world's offerings. The world doesn't look so good anymore to this man. He treasures Jesus and so he dwells with Jesus. A great preacher once said, only fire can dwell with fire. Take a piece of iron or steel and place it in the fire and it will absorb the heat and begin to glow with incandescent brightness piece of metal becomes like the fire, hot, burning. Only fire can dwell with fire. To be cleansed, we must confess, and then we must forsake sin, and not just because it's dangerous or bad, but because God is better. And when we realize God is better, sin, its alluring power is broken. It doesn't attract us like it used to. And so we're feasting on God and the man feasting on God can dwell in the presence of God. And that man begins to take on the character of God. I found a liner that fit here. Beholding is becoming. You want to be more like Jesus? Behold him. Cultivate fellowship with him. You don't become like Jesus by doing. Now, yes, there's stuff to be done. But the doing is a result of a transformed heart, folks. It's the realization that God is everything. You want to be more like Jesus, spend more time with Jesus. The next thing we have is the commission of eternity, verse 8. So his sin is now cleansed. And then it says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah is given a commission to declare the eternal word of God to Israel. 
Only when Isaiah was cleansed did he hear the call of the Lord. First comes the cleansing, then comes the calling. We do that backwards and it causes a lot of problems. Cleansing precedes the calling. Now our commission is similar to Isaiah's in that we're to declare who God is. We're to declare God's word. But how different are the results that we can expect? If you read on, you don't have to do it now, but what you'll discover is that Isaiah was commissioned to go to Israel and God told him in advance, no one is going to listen to you. There'll be no visible fruit, Isaiah. How many of you had signed up for ministry if God said, I want you to declare my name, but let me just tell you in advance, nothing. Nothing's going to happen. Our commission is quite a bit different. Ours is the great commission. Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We are commissioned by our King to declare His glory and His coming kingdom in every nation on earth. And He says in that verse that every nation will be penetrated with the gospel to the degree that there is a viable Christian witness among all people groups. Now, not all people will be saved. We know that. But we can be sure that God will rescue many from all nations. We have the assurance of results. Visible results. We will see people come to faith, and it's happening today in record numbers. But there's still many who do not know. Isaiah couldn't approach his commission with expectation of results. And yet he was consumed by the call. Why? Because he had gazed upon the glory of God. How much more consumed ought we to be? Lastly, we have the compelling errand. And you think of errand, you think of a trip to the grocery store, but I think we've destroyed the English language. You've heard of a knight's errand before? Errand is mission. So the compelling mission is more fitting. It says here in verse 8, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? That's part of that invitation. And then Isaiah responds, Here am I, send me. He had beheld the glory of Jesus Christ. He had heard the Lord's commission. And his response was this. I'll go. No cajoling, no twisting of arm, no guilt trip. He had seen beauty and he had been invited by God to declare that beauty to those who did not know it. And he says, here am I. That should be our response to seeing Jesus. That we would find it an irresistible call to go declare his glory among the nations. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, Paul speaks of this compelling errand, as it were. He says, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus 
that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The love of Christ compels me. Literally, this is what that word means. It leaves me with no choice. Paul, like Isaiah, had encountered the glory of God in Christ. He was reduced to his proper size. He was invited by God on mission. And now he says here, I declare who God is because I cannot help myself. Isaiah knew that it would have been been perfectly fitting and just for God to snuff him out on the spot. To cast him in torment. But God doesn't do that. After seeing the beauty of Christ, Isaiah confesses his sin and God extends mercy. Heals him, fills him. And then he says, Who will go? Isaiah says, Me. Got no choice. It is my hope that this message will inspire all of us to do more for the Great Commission. Don't misunderstand this message. I hope you do more and you deepen your involvement in getting the gospel out here and all around the world. But I pray that this happens because you've gazed upon the beauty of Jesus. Why? Because I believe the beauty of Jesus Christ is the only motivation that will sustain radical devotion to the Great Commission for the rest of your life. Let me say that again. The beauty of Christ is the only motivation that will ensure that you spend all of your days declaring who He is to people in Albuquerque, to people in this country, to people around the world. So yes, go, go, go in the Great Commission but not before you look at Jesus and you get a vision of his worth. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as a result of this message that we would all take some time, perhaps tonight, tomorrow morning, to get alone, to get quiet, and to get in your word. And I pray, God, that as we read your word, that you would give us a fresh, a fresh and sharp encounter with you. 
You said, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be open. God, we're asking, we're seeking, we're knocking. As we read your word, we pray that you would show us yourself. And that you would give us a zeal for your name. And as the overflow of knowing you and loving you, we would tell our neighbors here and around the world about your greatness. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would water the word that's been planted and that you would bear much fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We all stand. We're going to close with a song. Before you do, if you need prayer or uh, encouragement, or if you just know that you're undone and you've met a holy God tonight, we have counselors and pastors who would love to pray and meet with you. If you have kids, this would be a great time to leave the sanctuary and get them. But we're going to close with a song. Good idea? Yeah?